The year is 2013. And Amy, sell me this podcast. Um, it's, uh, I, I think maybe like movies. Movies are good and we talk about. The movie is The Wolf of Wall Street. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by my co-host, the amazing Amy Nicholson. Every week we talk about great movies, and we are talking about a movie today that is Martin Scorsese's most successful film to date. Now that may change in just a little bit of time because... His brand new film is in theaters. I can't wait to see it. I'm actually very excited about this new film. Killers of the Flower Moon, people have been talking about it. And we thought it would be interesting, because we've talked about other Scorsese films, to talk about one of his most controversial, in a way, because this movie, Wolf of Wall Street, is a movie that doesn't tell you what to think. It just kind of puts out a version of a man's life as told by him, and we, the audience, are left to decide what we think about it. And I think that this drove people crazy. People wanted to know, does Scorsese think this is bad? (laughs) Tell us, Daddy Scorsese, is ripping innocent people off of millions and millions and millions of dollars a bad thing? I can't tell. All I know is Leonardo DiCaprio looks pretty cool snorting tons of drugs and gobbling quaaludes. We got fake teeth, real punches. By the way, you know that Jonah Hill did get punched in the face and lost his teeth in this movie. Yeah. And Scorsese (laughs) is like, keep the cameras rolling. The swelling looks good. We've got off-screen vomit from people eating too much sushi during takes. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. Uh, There's so much going on here. And to think that this movie might not have happened unless it was financed outside of Hollywood. And, you know, it just goes to show you that When you have to go through the studio system, this movie couldn't have gotten made. And when you do, it actually becomes the biggest Scorsese hit ever. And one of the longest, not counting the Irishman. Oh, God. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, Amy, (laughs) take out your pennies and let's put them down on the stock called Unspool It. The year is 2013, and crime does pay if you're stock market scammer Jordan Belfort. After making millions convincing people to give him money for worthless penny stocks, Jordan gets busted by the FBI and does 22 months in prison, which he spends telling his cellmate wild, true stories about his life of drugs and debauchery and shameless hustle. His prison cellmate is Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong fame, and Tommy convinces Jordan to turn his memories into a memoir, which Jordan does. Using Hunter S. Thompson as his style guide, he calls the book The Wolf of Wall Street. And it's so full of sex and quaaludes and exclamation points that it actually starts a Hollywood bidding war. This bidding war boils down to Jordan deciding between two movie stars who want to play him and pay him a ton of money while making him exponentially more famous. So who should he be? Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio? Leonardo DiCaprio tells him, hey, I can get this movie directed by Martin Scorsese. Martin and I already made three movies together. 
So Jordan goes with him, but their studio, Warner Brothers, is not into all of the cocaine and the blowjobs and the goldfish eating. So while Scorsese works on the script for months, they will not give the movie the green light. So Scorsese gives up, he and DiCaprio make Shutter Island, and then Warner Brothers just considers having Ridley Scott direct it. And then the studio's just like, you know what, forget this, this is too much. But then an independent company says they'll finance it. And Scorsese and DiCaprio can put in all the craziness they want. They've got money from Abu Dhabi to go nuts, and they do. The final film is Three Hours of Chaos. That's not only the most fun starring performance of DiCaprio's adult career, but it also launches a new star, 22-year-old Margot Robbie, who makes her big Hollywood debut playing Jordan Belfort's second wife. There's also Matthew McConaughey as Jordan's first mentor, Jonah Hill as Jordan's second in command, and Kyle Chandler as the FBI agent determined to bring him down. The Wolf of Wall Street is released on Christmas Day 2013, and it becomes the biggest hit of Scorsese's career. It makes over $400 million, which is literally 8.5 times more money than Scorsese made with Goodfellas. And then the FBI gets involved and says, hold up, this movie was not made with money from Abu Dhabi. It was embezzled from Malaysia by the Malaysian prime minister's stepson. And Jordan Belfort decides that this, this is the scandal that will tarnish his reputation forever. And he sues this independent production company for $300 million. Okay, Jordan, yes, that's definitely the worst thing your name has ever been connected with, sure. I have not heard an update on how that lawsuit shook out, but I can tell you what song was in the zeitgeist that opening weekend. It was a song about a man fighting with the beast inside himself, the inner demons that have gotten him everything he ever wanted, but at what price? It is Eminem and the monster. I don't really know that song. No, neither do I. The song the week before was uh, Miley Cyrus' Wrecking Ball. I was like, oh, that'd be kind of fun. He did come in like a wrecking ball. But yeah, I had, this is like Rihanna does the hook. Never heard the song before. There's a lot of late period Eminem that I'm not familiar with, but God bless me, still out there making great music. Amy, we talked about this last week. I was hypothesizing, is this Martin Scorsese's most popular film? And I spent the last week really thinking about that because there are movies that are great that he has made. But this movie feels like it captured a zeitgeist unlike any other. And and that's hard to say from the maker of Goodfellas. But I do believe that this movie did something that that movie doesn't do, which is make a more fun version of Goodfellas. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I'm kind of grappling with that, too, because it definitely got more people to go see it in the theater. But I do also wonder if people are rewatching The Wolf of Wall Street with the same intensity. I don't know. It's like when I think of the popular films of Scorsese's career, I weirdly go straight to imagining them in terms of movie posters because that's so much of how they've just been involved in our life is like movie posters on people's walls, you know, seeing like, oh, I've gone on an internet date. And of course, this guy has taxi driver on his wall, you know, and and I don't know if I've ever seen a Wolf of Wall Street poster on anybody's walls, but maybe I'm just not in college anymore. You know, I don't know if that is a popular poster. I mean, again, this movie came out in 2013. 
But I feel like I've heard it discussed so much, especially the drugs. The drugs in this movie, they are fun. I mean, ODs in this movie are hilarious. And there's something that I think works with this movie or opens this movie up to a larger audience that his other films don't. This movie, to me, is a complete satire, right? You have to look at it with a different lens. And I think that there are some people out there that don't. They're like, this is awesome. You can do shit and get away with it. And life is good. And pretty much every other Scorsese film, there is a fall from grace. And here, the fall from grace is like a fall onto a trampoline. He bounces right back up again. And I wonder if that makes this movie way more palatable. And at the same time, if you're not looking too deeply at it, you don't see the message that he's actually trying to convey. Well, yeah, that the that the palatable ability of the ending, the happiness of the ending is actually what's terrifying, right? I yeah. mean, there was the first version of the script that just ends with Jordan Belfort going to prison. And then they met Jordan Belfort and they're like, oh, he's doing fine. And he's actually more popular than ever. And then this movie makes him even more popular than ever. It's, I mean, what happens to Jordan Belfort is just like exactly what his wife says in this movie when, when he's like, oh no, Forbes came and they wrote a mean article about me. She's like, there's no such thing as bad publicity, which is true in the film. And it's true here. And he's still kind of this motivational speaker. And I think that's the scary part, like even to Leo, because they have this fight once, like debate, I'll call it, about how satirical this film is. This is a satire and it's and it's a dark yeah. comedy. But, uh, you know, so is so is Dr. Strangelove, yeah. you know, yeah. or it's it's uh, we take a, a funny approach to this. But ultimately, what we're talking about is a very serious yeah. subject matter. And it represents something within our very culture. Yeah. I mean, and, and the winners and losers and lots of money. And people get hurt and people make money and absolutely. and all of that. And people go to jail. And absolutely. that's why I didn't I never I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think I ever thought of it as a satire. I just thought of a straight story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is an accurate depiction. It's an accurate of, depiction. But their own yeah. life was yeah. a satire. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, sure. But <laughs> I think uh, I think, uh, you know, t- I think not to separate yourself from it. No, this is it. Mm. I think this is really it. This yeah. is the mentality. So then, yeah, this is the big question. Is it a satire if there's a way for the Jordan Belforts of this world to look at the movie and be like, yeah, that's exactly how it is. And you know what? It does work out for us. Well, I think there's a difference, right? White collar crime is easier to get away with. No one's getting killed, right? And I also think that what's interesting about this film is we never see the victims. So Ever. We never. So we never actually feel like he's done anything wrong. We're actually hearing his narration of the events. And I think what's really interesting about it is obviously Scorsese created something that was often imitated after Goodfellas, that first person narration. And I think that he turns it on its head here because when we watch Goodfellas, I think we're understanding that all this pretty much happened, or at least it is as true to our main character, Ray Liotta, as it is to us, the audience. And here in this movie, Jordan Belfort, from the moment that we hear him on the phone doing that penny stock sale, we know that this guy is a bullshit artist. And this movie is the same thing. This is sitting down with him. This is like being Tommy Chong and hearing the fun version of his life, not the real version of his life, which I think answers a lot of different questions about 
what we see and what we don't see in this movie. For example, I think the thing that really jumps out at me and the reason why I believe this movie isn't true is the way that they handle when he hits Margot Robbie, right? Towards the end of the movie, he's freaking out. The world is crumbling. If this is a movie where we're trying to see him really fall apart, I think we would see that scene and see the power of that hit. But it's like in a hallway, it's dark. And then he steals his kid and he's escaping from his house. And it's all through his perspective, right? You stay with him. You know, we're listening to a bullshit artist. And and yeah, yeah, I hit my wife. Sure, sure, whatever. We're not going to stay on that because that actually upsets the narrative that I'm telling, which is I saw some crazy shit. It's fun to see a movie where it's not an unreliable narrator. It's a narrator that is trying to sell you a pen. I mean, that's what the movie is, right? The movie is selling you a pen. And I think it does work because we all buy this pen. That's why his TikTok goes through the roof at Jordan Belfort's, um, not Martin Scorsese, who does have a great TikTok presence. But there is this energy of this whole movie. We buy into him. Well, yeah, he is selling us. I mean, you can tell it in the way that Leonardo DiCaprio is looking at the camera from the beginning. He's looking at us and being like, hey, my name is Jordan. My name is Jordan Belfort, not him. Me. That's right. I'm a former member of the middle class raised by two accountants in a tiny apartment in Bayside, Queens. The year I turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. No, 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 no. My Ferrari was white like Don Johnson's in Miami Vice, not red. I mean, this is a sales pitch. They're framing it like a sales pitch. They're shooting this movie like a very, very good infomercial, you know, contrasting it with like the very bad infomercial that we will see later on. This is the good version. But the movie opens with a commercial, uh, like a, like a, it opens with an infomercial for this investment firm and, and the, and the regalness of it. And, and we're immediately pulled out of this lion, majestic animal walking through a wall street office. And then we are, you know, thrust into this dwarf tossing scene. And in that moment, you're like, that's the bullshit. And here's the real thing. But even the real thing is bullshit. Can I just say though, opening this with a lion as their mascot is so weird when then he like named himself the wolf because totally different animal. And also I mean, his friends at the time, like the guy, you know, the actual Donnie that Donnie is based on mm-hmm. is like, he's not a wolf. Nobody ever called him a wolf. He's calling himself a wolf. Wolf is completely like his own invention. And you know what? I did something incredibly scientific and I Googled wolves to see if I really had the right feeling of what Wolf of Wall Street would mean. And, you know, wolves are, according to Google, quote, complex, highly intelligent animals who are caring, playful, and above all, devoted to family. And there is not a single one of those words that applies to Jordan (laughs) Belfort. He is as simple as it comes. He's cunning. Well, a wolf in sheep's clothing is more of the, I I know that you're going deep, but can I just say- he's proud of wolf. He's proud of wolf. He's definitely not devoted to family. And I realized the animal that he really is, is he's a jackal. Because the the Google definition of jackal is that they are cooperative, cunning hunters. They can best be described as opportunistic omnivores. They can cooperatively hunt small antelopes and also eat reptiles, insects, ground-dwelling birds, fruits, berries, and grass. And if that image isn't exactly the kind of firms that we're going into, these cooperative hunters of animals going after small prey, penny stocks, people without a lot of cash, oh, perfect, perfect. The right animal was right there, Jordan. All right, well, let me just 
go back to what you said about the uh, opening up on a, an animal that is not the name of the film, right? It's a lion. But I recognize that lion immediately when I first saw it. It brought me back to when I was a kid because I don't know if you remember this. In the jungle, among the money funds, there is only one king. Call 1-800-DRIVERS for the lion's share. Whoa. No, I never saw that. All right, so that commercial was for Dreyfus. And I remember this commercial so much as a kid because it was just on all the time. It was a lion running around Wall Street and the lion scares the bull, right? And so that's, I understood why they were doing it because it's a parody of that ad in that moment in time. And I didn't even understand what Dreyfus was, but that image of what Dreyfus is, it's burned into my brain. I guess maybe I watched too many episodes of Facts of Life and Different Strokes because it was airing every commercial break. I, I want to get Lions a good lawyer. I just feel like everybody's using Lions and Lions are like, back off. You know, <laughs> wolves deserve a good lawyer too. And also coyotes. A, a lot of animals deserve lawyers, not jackals. Jackals don't get lawyers. Jackals can defend themselves. You know, watching this movie, one of the things that really stuck out to me was, whoa, this is a long ass movie. I mean, this movie is big because this movie isn't traditional in the sense of how it's scripted. It really is just a rise, 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 rise. There's no big obstacles in this movie. I would argue the biggest obstacle in this movie is that by the time he becomes an accountant or become certified, a Black Monday happens. Something you know very much about. Uh, believe me. I mean, we we did a lot of this same stuff on the show. I, when I did my research on these kind of investment bankers for that show, there's so much that we took from these docs and also stories. These men, mostly men, were living this life of rock stars. And I was amazed by that. But in this movie, Black Monday happens and it's it's just like a, Oh, yeah. And Black Monday happened. And for about two minutes, I was concerned about what I was going to do. And then, boom, we're off again. And then it's like, OK, well, I got to hide my money. And boom, we're off again. Like there really isn't any moment, even when he gets caught by the FBI. It's like you got to rat on your friends. Boom, he fucks him over. Then he gets arrested. Boom, he's back out. Like there's no downslide in this movie. Like there's no that, soul searching. There's no. No. Like, oh, right. Am I doing the right thing? It, it's yeah. all reaction. I don't think he thinks he did anything wrong. I mean, even when he gets caught, he's like, it wasn't even because of me. It was because of fucking Benihana. <laughs> yeah, we're just never eating at Benihana again. I mean, the film is structured not at all like a traditional arc. It's structured almost more like a drug trip where he just keeps like mainlining pills and the film keeps like injecting adrenaline into you and you just keep outrunning the crash. Like that's really what it feels like. You know, you're right. just like, going and going and going and going and going. You feel almost like you're kind of like in a hallucinatory state because it doesn't give you any breaks. He's not ever like sitting down and having a quiet moment looking at his kids and being like, oh, hello, I do love you. You know, there's nothing like that. There's no humanness. There's nothing that's not action. The first time he reacts to his kids in any way, like he waves at his kid who's, you know, riding the horse. But the only time that he really feels a connection to these children is when 
somebody says, I'm going to take them from you. Like, he only wants them because someone else is going to have them. You know, it's a really interesting point of view because he's like, he. it's not about like, I need my kids. It's like, I don't want you to have my kids. I think this entire movie is about being with a man outrunning a crash that he doesn't believe is happening. And even if the crash happens, it's not even going to be that bad. I mean, this is a movie that basically opens with a crash in the first five minutes. We see him crash a helicopter. And I want to play the end of it because I think that's exactly how this world goes. He crashes his helicopter at his house because he's high with the pilot in the helicopter. And the pilot just looks at this rich guy and says, good job, because nobody will ever say you absolutely fucked up and there are now consequences for this. Everyone is just in Jordan Belfort's world to tell him what a good job he's doing while he's destroying everything. By the way, let's just call a spade a spade here. Jordan Belfort is an attractive guy, but he's not. DiCaprio. And even that, like Jordan Belfort's deciding who's going to play him. Who who will he let play him? It's right? like the most attractive, you know, or conventionally... Oh, the two most attractive guys in the world want to be me. Yes. <laughs> and of course that's an ego stroke. Although I gotta say, it was two light-haired blondish actors who want to play this guy with like very, very dark hair. And I do not love Leo's dye job. Like, because maybe you could say that it's like a guy trying to make sure he looks like dark haired and authoritative, but he's like 24, 25, 26. I don't think that character's dying his hair yet in a way that makes him look like a 70 year old lounge singer. <laughs> you know, look, I did not mind his dye job. I, I'm really just fascinated by what DiCaprio does in this movie. Like, I think he's a great actor and I feel like it's really interesting that he hasn't gotten his full due. I, I love... Wait, you think he hasn't gotten his full due? I just, I don't know. I feel like he struggles with being perceived as being a great actor. And when you look at his body of work, it's really fucking impressive. And he makes fantastic choices, works with great people, and I feel like he's constantly challenging himself. I'm, I mean, I'm bummed a little bit that he got the Oscar for The Revenant, which, which I, I thought was great. Fine. It's not something I'm going to rewatch. I think he's better as like Brad Pitt too. When they're playing these interesting like characters, like really can, can I loved him in Once Upon a Time on Hollywood as well. Like I feel like when he can have these like little quirks to him, because I also think it plays into a public perception of him that is really kind of interesting too. I think we see DiCaprio as a partier. And I think that people just don't take him seriously, even though his work is exceptional and very nuanced. I don't know. You you think that he's gotten all of his due? Well, it's tricky, You're right? Because when you bring up the partying, there is kind of an image of DiCaprio as the man who refuses to grow up. Right. Like even just this weekend, you know, Google tweeted like, congrats, it's like our 25 year anniversary. And somebody just responded, Leonardo DiCaprio is now breaking up with Google and downloading Bing. You know, uh, and like there is that like Peter Pan-ness to him and his girlfriends that I do think has kept him from elevating into proper elder statesmen of Hollywood. But that said, I feel like all of his choices after Titanic were really this marked choice of like, you will take me seriously. I'm going to be a grown up. I'm going to look all glum. I'm going to be all serious. He picked these adult things. He made this really deliberate, like hard, hard, hard left. 
And Wolf of Wall Street is one of the first things he does that actually has a little bit of humor in it. And that is why this movie feels like a special performance to me. I mean, I would also argue that Catch Me If You Can has that kind of same sense of fun. There's a bit. That's the closest one I could think of. And I I also think uh, Django, he plays a really, I mean, it's not fun. It's it's a fun performance, right? Like it I, is. I will, you know. But there's still just like so many movies where he has his hair combed back all slick and you're right. he's just pouting. I'll buy it. You're right. I mean, he does often. <laughs> and I think that maybe that is part of it, too. Like, we're really getting to see him do something very different in this movie. But I'll also argue that after Titanic, his want to do things differently versus what people would allow him to do. And we talked about this in the American Psycho episode. He was yeah, not allowed exactly. to do American Psycho. He was not allowed to do Boogie Nights, right? But I do think that he is somebody who knew exactly what he wanted to do and how he wanted to work and for a long time wasn't able to make those choices. Yeah, Boogie Nights would have been perfect. And that is kind of how I was watching this film as like his makeup for American Psycho. You know, I wasn't allowed to do American Psycho. So what would it be like if I played this character now? You know, if I played a Wall Street guy who's a completely unreliable narrator who rampages through and causes a lot of destruction. And here he gets to have like even more fun doing it. I mean... Christian Bale is doing goofy dances, talking about his favorite albums. And Leonardo DiCaprio is going on a dance floor at his wedding and doing a dance that I just physically don't even understand where his elbows went to make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) I think at the core, why this movie is successful and why it's his most successful film is because this is a straight white male fantasy. This is like the new Keeping Up with the Joneses. It's not just having like a beautiful house and a great job. It's like having the best house of all your friends and being at the top of everything and having the hottest like wife and ha- and having the biggest boat like whatever it is whether it is the helicopter like I'm expanding this boat to land my helicopter it's it's the bravado of telling uh, the ship captain that you can steer a boat better right like this is unchecked success and wealth like this is the this is the american dream and i don't think it is confined to just stockbrokers and i think that's why this movie really really works because it is a mindset that so many people have this is ellis island here people okay who you are where you're from whether your relatives came over on a a fucking mayflower or an inner tube from haiti this right here is the land of opportunity stratton oakmont is america I agree. I mean, I would say that in a way, this is the idea that Scorsese has been chasing through all of his films. You know, there's like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, Goodfellas. These are all men who are trying to get the American dream that they believe that they're owed, you know, and like what they're willing to do to try to achieve this thing that seems like impossible to get there. But there's something really specific about like Jordan Belfort and like how unceasing his appetite is and how large it is. And maybe because it feels in a way both bigger and more relatable. Like, I'm not going to go and join the mafia, but like I could become a stockbroker, I guess. <laughs> right. At the core of being in the mafia, it's something that's scary and dangerous. This movie is not scary and dangerous. It's dangerous, but it's not scary. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it's that dangerous because I don't there's no danger that really lurks in the moment that he's the most freaked out when he finds out that Kyle Chandler who gives a great performance in this, is after him. He's so cocky. He's like, I can handle him. I can actually handle him. Yeah, I can sell this guy too. Right. 
And I think to a certain extent, that final shot of Kyle Chandler on the subway is showing it kind of worked. Like, yes, Kyle Chandler brought him in and was unceasing to bring him in. But he planted a seed in his brain. And it's there in the final scene of Kyle Chandler where you're like, oh, he got to him. It didn't, it didn't maybe change anything, but he did, he did get in there. That's what he does. Right. The idea that like he gets to take fancy cars and Kyle will always be a guy who's too broke to do anything but take the subway. You see Jordan Belfort in a fancy prison playing tennis and the guy who brought him down is in a dark subway. And yeah, you know, you kind of are wondering how much did we really punish this guy? Well, I also think there's something really interesting in that final subway scene where you pan out of the newspaper, you know, Belfort sent to prison. And it didn't make a difference. No one cares. It's nothing. It ultimately is nothing. You know, we see stories like that all the time. And so Kyle Chandler did something that really was nothing. Like, and he says it to him on the boat. He's like, you'll always be this and I'll always be that. And I think this movie resonates at a, at a point where also this is where, you know, Trump comes into our frame and it, and he represents a same kind of energy. This is, I think, why Trump was elected on a certain level. It's like, yeah, I do what I want when I want and I say what I want and that's what I do. And, you know, it, it's so funny that, that that scene where he basically chooses money over family um, happens in front of Trump Plaza. You know, I don't think that they could have known or maybe at that point. I mean, I don't know where when this movie was shot versus when Trump was in office. Oh, I think Trump was already doing a birther thing around that time, but I don't think yeah. he was running for president. But he did walk by. Yeah, the scene where he like is breaking up with his wife for Margot Robbie is in front of Trump Tower, where I guess we're supposed to infer he's living. Right. And yeah, because that's where she comes out of. And um, apparently they ran into Trump while they were filming that. And Trump was like. You could put me in a movie. You could put me in a movie, but it won't just be a walk-on part. You have to give me a big part. And they're like, we're good. Man, oh man. He tried to basically home alone to them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is part of that thing because like the two ending sequences that I think are like really powerful, they're kind of the only scenes where we just see ordinary people who aren't working in this world. The people on the subway that, that Kyle Chandler is looking at it. And then we cut to Jordan Belfort out of prison teaching seminars about how to basically be like him. And the last shot of this movie is kind of strange because it feels a little bit like a fizzle. You know, it's not on Jordan. It's not on his face looking triumphant. It's not on him behind bars. It's not on anything. The camera kind of pans as he's like trying to tell people, show me how you'd sell this pen. Show me how this you'd sell this pen. None of them are doing a particularly impressive job. And then it goes past those guys and just looks at the hundreds of people standing out there Ordinary faces, ordinary faces who just want to be him, who see his story and they just want to be him. It's almost like the end of a zombie movie. All of these people want to. The only difference is they're just not as good. Sell me this pen. It's it's a, a amazing pen to for professionals to Sell me this pen. Well, it's a nice pen. You can, you can use the pen to write down thoughts from your life so you can remember. Sell me this pen. Because that's the thing, right? It's not necessarily that he wants something unusual compared to most people. It's just that he is probably unusually good at getting it. He's unusually good at being a salesman. 
he has so many times in this movie, we like see him coming in and like someone's trying to give a weak speech or do a weak sale. Steve Madden's trying to tell people why they should buy his shoes. It's not going over well. My name's Steve Madden. Yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> the name is on the box. <laughs> Show them the shoes. Show them the shoes. Okay, yeah. Anyway, you know, just if this shoe it is pretty cool. This is the Mary Lou, which is really the shoe that put me on the map. Without it, I wouldn't be Believe it or not, believe it or not, though, the Mary Lou is actually the same as the Mary Jane, but it's black leather. And then Jordan will take the microphone and give a speech that, like, delivers. Just the classic kind of, like, let me show you how this is done. Are you behind on your credit card bills? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Is your landlord ready to evict you? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Does your girlfriend think you're a fucking worthless loser? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. What I think is so funny about this is like there are some old speeches that Jordan Belfort did give in real life that are online at his company at Stratton work parties and they do not go like this. Like his own employees, like in, there's a party from 1994 right after he'd stepped down because he did actually step down on like in this movie. Uh, he did step down and try to save his ass. He's like at this Christmas party, he's trying to get people to pay attention to him and his actual party goers and employees like do not care. And it is so funny. They treat him exactly like the Steve Madden in this movie. Everybody, I want to make this really short. Um, no short jokes. Integrity, loyalty. It's a place where people can come. Hello. The reference to short jokes, by the way, is because Jordan Belfort in real life is like 5'7", I think. Uh, And even his own parents, his own parents went on record saying they think part of why Jordan chased fame so much is because he had a Napoleon complex. Which I don't like to buy into that kind of easy psychology, but what is it like when your own parents are like, our kid's short, Andy was a loser in high school. That's why all of this was happening. But by the way, like anybody who has something to prove is going to work 10 times harder, right? I mean, I think. I also will say that the reason why at least that speech, that that Steve Madden speech, which I think is so awesome, a great speech in this movie, we got to tip our hat to Spielberg, who was on set this day watching it. And Scorsese says like, oh, Spielberg co-directed that scene. He gave advice to actors. He suggested camera angles. You know, this whole thing. I like, I love the the fact that these two guys built that scene because that scene is a a really, really powerful scene. Um, And and I love the scene at the end when he is contemplating whether or not he's going to leave and the way that that camera stays on the woman in the pink Chanel suit. Because in that scene too, this is Jordan's version of what he's like. He's like, I can't step down because these people, they like this woman's going to cry looking at me because I gave her so much. Now, in reality, like you just said, you played those clips like, but he's seeing himself like that. And I think the best salesmen see themselves as the best sale. Like, you know, like he will be relentless. And, you know, we talked earlier about not looking inwards. It's interesting, though, because he doesn't look inwards, but he's very good and Conversely to American Psycho, he's very good at making people believe that he is looking out for them. You know, whether it's the 
the penny stocks, whether it's this woman, you know, whether it's Donnie, it's like everybody, I mean, the way that he treats his wife, you know, it's like he can spin bullshit and sometimes he gets caught in it, but he's, it's like water off a duck's back. Like he can lie, get in there. But I think that that's the thing that's really interesting about him. He has a humanity or at least he believes he has a humanity in connecting with people. Whether or not he actually has any morals associated with that is a whole different thing. And that's what this movie is about. Really, it's like, you know, do you have morals? Like, do you like do you feel bad about doing this? Like he's manipulating people, but he and he understands human psychology, but it doesn't affect the way he acts. It only helps him make a sale. Yeah, that's a really good distinction, actually. You know, that American Psycho is about a guy who feels like he doesn't even exist, that he wears a mask, that nobody knows who he is. Is he real? Like other people aren't really real. Nothing's really real to this guy. He's not even real about his work. Like we don't even ever know an American psycho exactly what he's doing and he doesn't seem to care. It's about kind of an emptiness at the soul of America. And Wolf of Wall Street is a really different approach. It's about a guy who's like, I know exactly what I am. I know exactly what I want. I know exactly how to get it. I know exactly how to do it. I know exactly what my work is. You know, there's like a, an empty mask on one in one film and then like a stick of dynamite on the other one. <laughs> a, a dynamite mask. I like that. Uh, <laughs> Free Halloween idea. Dynamite mask. Man. But you see how this is triggered or how, who lit the fuse on that dynamite. And that's Matthew McConaughey. It's all a Fugazi. You know what a Fugazi is? No. Fugazi. It's a uh, fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi. It's a wazi. It's a woozy. It's a... F- fairy dust it doesn't exist it's never landed it is no matter it's not on the elemental chart it it's not fucking real right all right right. (laughs) stay with me Mm -hmm. we don't create shit we don't build anything no so if you got a client who bought stock at eight Mm -hmm. and it now sits at 16 and he's all fucking happy he wants to cash in liquidate take his fucking money and run home you don't let him do that okay because that would make it real that moment, right? This is his birth. This is his entry point in his, again, talking about like the mythologizing of his life, his first day, he's going out with the head of this company. The head of the company gives him the keys to the castle, but basically he is giving him all the tools right here. Like he's telling him how to sell and Belfort is like uncomfortable. He's not in yet. He's a little bit He's low status. Yeah, he's a little sweaty. He's like, I don't drink. I'm not having a martini. Just water's fine. I'm listening to you. I'm nervously laughing your jokes. What do you mean we don't want to make money for our clients? And it's funny because Matthew McConaughey seems so confident. But when you look at that character, his hair is kind of weird. His suit's kind of weird. He's designed in a way where he's going to look very cheap and pathetic 10 more minutes into the movie when you think back of what he looked like. He comes in looking powerful, but he's going to look more like an Al Bundy shoe salesman compared to the world that we're about to enter. And I also argue that that McConaughey character is maybe the way that Belfort looked, right? Like in reality, like we're looking at the Hollywood version of Belfort. And I think intentionally so. I think that that's what Scorsese is going for. Like, I don't know if Belfort looked the like, you know, looked exactly the way that DiCaprio looked. You can't. DiCaprio is a fucking giant movie star. But what we're getting here is evil McConaughey like, what if McConaughey worked for bad instead of good? Because that whole, like, beating his chest, that whole thing, like, that is, like, improvised. That's a, that's something that he does before he acts. And you could see that DiCaprio looks off at the moment where he does look uncomffortable. That was him looking at Scorsese, being like, is this okay? 
And, and like, they're like, no, no, we got to keep this. This is the tone of the movie. Like it's, he's bullshitting you. You're listening and you're buying into his bullshit. Then you're going to sell bullshit to other people listening to you. Like it's, a, it's, it's building this, this tower of shit. Um, and I love, I just love that scene because McConaughey is, I think a very charismatic guy. You can't get away from that. And whether he's talking about, you know, jerking off two times a day or just keep living, like you feel like, oh, I got to live. Like there's something here. And that scene doesn't work if it's not somebody like that. And I feel like his whole attempt is to best that. How can it be a better version of that? And he does do that. Or at least in his mind, he does. I regret to admit that I spent over an hour of my life watching interviews from the real guy who the Matthew McConaughey character is based on. Whoa. Listening to interviewers try to get him to say whether or not he actually does masturbate twice a day. Finally found a clip. He says he doesn't. It was kind of underwhelming. And I was like, well, that was a good hour of my life spent. But also, who knows? Who knows if he's even bluffing now? He knows the movie's out there. What's he going to say? But um, what I do think is interesting about this character, though, is it's like a really good meld right after we just saw McConaughey play another version of a hustler in Magic Mike, you know, just right before this. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you get money? How do you work a crowd? How do you control a thing? Like, how do you create your universe, whether it's this like dance club or the world of like a stock brokerage where you get to be king. And it made me just flash back to that little brief moment where we had our tiny reconnaissance, you know, that he winds up actually even beating Leonardo DiCaprio for the Oscar this year for Dallas Buyers Club. And then he like gives the speech that abruptly ends the reconnaissance. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I don't know. I got to think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later. This person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25. 10 years later, that same person comes to me and goes, so are you a hero? And I was like, not even close. No, no, no. She said, why? I said, because my hero is me at 35. So you see, every day, every week, every month, and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. A bit of a bust. I wish we could have that Oscar back and either give it to Leo or honestly, my pick that year, as good as Leo is in this, is I probably would have wanted to give it to Joaquin Phoenix and her. Oh, he's great. He's so good in that movie. But honestly, this is right up there. Like, these two are tied. If Leo never got it for The Revenant, he should have definitely gotten it for here. Now I'm just doing, like, math Jenga. If he had gotten it for here, he wouldn't have gotten it for The Revenant. Oh, I love playing this out. I do want to just hit one thing here too with McConaughey. I think there's something interesting. Like he is literally coming off of Dallas Buyers Club, the shoot to shoot this movie. That's why he looks a little bit weird too. He's not as full figure. He's very thin, yeah. And when you look at the script of the scene and you look at the finished product, it's very different. McConaughey is going off. It is improvised, right? It's a, it, like when you look at the script, it's a very dry scene. Um, and I think this is something that I love about Scorsese, which is like he lets his actors go. And when you see Jonah in this movie, who's known for improvising against DiCaprio, there's a playfulness in a lot of these scenes. These guys are one-upping each other, and it has a sense, a, a, a vibe of, of, yeah, we're all shooting the shit. We're all bullshitting each other. And I think that you can't capture that 
in writing in a way. Like it has to have like a little bit of, um, it's got to feel a little bit more free. It's got to feel like a little bit more like you're coming up with it on the spot. Not to say you can't act that, but everyone, he pushes their characters here. And this is, I think, the importance of the movie. You know, McConaughey talked about this too. Like DiCaprio kept on pushing him, go further, go further. Because I think that makes for a really interesting movie. Everyone's out of their depth and they're convincing not only themselves, but everyone around them that they're not. And everybody else around them also is out of their depth and they don't want to, like, you basically, like, everyone's drowning and everyone's like, I'm fine. Oh, me too. I'm fine too. And no one's helping each other. It's like, but everyone is so convinced. And I think that that gives this movie a manic pace, this energy of just frenetic. It's why the editing, I think, is so interesting in this movie. It's off. It's like, it's it's jumpy. It's jarring. It's purposeful. But because it's like, it's not, it's not a steady hand. Nothing in this movie is a steady hand. This is like, this is... I'm going to take your money and run. Like, I'm ready to run. Yeah, I love the moments when the conversation is kind of capturing that tone that you're talking about, where, like, you just have two really funny performers sitting across from each other and, like, repeating words, mumbling things, saying things in a way that kind of captures this idea of, like, confusion and hustle. Like, one of the ones that just really makes me laugh right up at the top is when, you know, Jordan Belfort, Black Monday is happening, trying to get a job, walks into the penny stock, it's almost an over-the-top note, but I'll allow it. He walks into this office, and the only, the first thing we hear is this. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm looking for, for an investor center. And then he sits down with Spike Jones, and they have this back and forth. Yeah, they're penny stocks. You know, uh, companies that can't get listed on NASDAQ, they don't have enough capital. Their shares trade here. Penny stocks? Yeah, this one, uh, Aerotyne, is a really interesting, or uh, Aerotyne. Aerotyne, yeah. Aero, Aerotyne. Aerotyne, yeah. Very hot stock right now. Yeah. It just, like, the looseness of that, the sense of yes. bullshitting, the sense of, like, I don't know, we're just two guys shooting the shit, figuring this out. And, and he kind of keeps that vibe going in so many of the different scenes. One of my favorite ones is just at the end, where it's, like, Leo and Jonah talking about non-alcoholic beer it didn't just see jordan has temporarily given up booze temporarily gone sober and it's almost musical the way this dialogue is written especially jonah's vocal performance throughout this movie he goes from like really blunt and harsh to kind of like gentle to sort of like offhand like oh it doesn't impress me very much like he has all of these different line deliveries where i feel like leo tends to be a little bit more like boom boom Boom, boom, boom. You want a beer, pal? Uh, what are you drinking? I got this non-alcoholic shit. What's that? It's like a non-alcoholic beer. It's got no no alcohol. Is it beer? Yeah, with no alcohol. But you drink enough and if you drink a lot, they get you fucked up? No, there's no alcohol. That's the fucking point. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I can get you beer if you want fucking I know, beer. No, but I, I don't drink, you remember? I don't drink anymore. Oh, you want to go inside and blow some lines of baking powder? Yeah. <laughs> can't imagine ever not enjoying getting fucked up. Yeah. I love it. Why was being sober? Fucking sucks. Boring, right? So boring. I want to kill myself. Just that blase tone that Jonah manages to get. Being like this man who is just as foul, choking on lunch meat, but like supremely thinking he's in control all the time. 
Well, that it's like character he, he, so good. I mean, he takes his dick out and starts masturbating in the middle of a party. And that's, I think, the other part of it. Yes, there's a lot and of drugs true. involved. That happened. That That's true. That was that was his second wife's introduction to the world of Jordan. She shows up at a party and a guy takes his dick out and starts masturbating at her. Eddie also, by the way, that character, I think, did swallow a goldfish. He's sort of denied it, but it also seems like it happened. Oh, I buy that 100%. Jonah Hill did take the goldfish and just like hold it in his mouth for three seconds. He wasn't allowed to actually swallow it. But I was loving to contrast that scene with like my favorite corporate meltdown scene, which is um, Jerry Maguire. When Jerry Maguire is being like escorted out of his office of sharks and he becomes incredibly protective of goldfish. I'm sorry, but it's a fact that there is such a thing as manners. These fish have manners. These fish have manners. In fact, they're coming with me. I'm starting a new company, and the fish will come with me. You can call me sentimental. The fish, they're coming with me. Would you ever be up for doing Jerry Maguire, by the way, as part of our random intermittent series of men in the corporate world? I think I would love to see that movie again through these eyes. I used to love that movie, you know, so... Uh, I would like to, I'd like to check it out, but you know, I want to talk about, you talk about Spike Jones and I love when he pops up in movies, but I also, I didn't remember it. And I jumped up out of my seat last night when I saw Fran Lebowitz in this movie. Oh yeah. (laughs) I was like, wait, 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 what? And I just love that Scorsese does that. Like, I love that he brings in people and, uh, she gives a great performance. She, I mean, by the way, she looks fantastic. And also when he gets like Jean Dujardin from The Artist uh, to well, show yeah, up as, I mean, like, as like the Swiss banker, who I would like to say definitively establishes how to pronounce the sparkling beverage spelled C-R-O-I-X. Under what circumstances would you be obligated to cooperate with an FBI or a, or a U.S. Justice Department investigation, for example? Ça dépend. Ça dépend. Wait. Ça dépend on, on, on what exactly? Whether America plans to invade Switzerland in the coming months. <laughs> <laughs> so check if tanks are rolling down the Rue de la Croix, huh? Uh, yes, Rue de la Croix. Croix. Ah, Croix. La Croix. Croix. Not Croix. No, not Rue de la Croix. <laughs> I want to say Croix. I'm just going to call it. I'm going to say the Wolf of Wall Street says Croix. I will call them La Croix. I love it. I mean, he's fantastic in this movie, too. I mean, everybody is fantastic. And I have to just, not that she doesn't get her due, but... I don't think I understood or really pulled in how great Margot Robbie is in this. I think that like when you first saw her, it's such a it's such a showy performance because obviously she's the object of his affection. And, you know, literally he treats her like an object. And that's a really interesting role to, I think, potentially fall apart in another movie and just be like an arm candy part. And that role could be nothing in somebody else's hands. I think that she's really powerful in this movie. And I think that she, like Jordan Belfort, is also a bullshit artist. You know, she's with this guy. They go to this party. She is kind of shocked at what she sees. And then the next scene, she's out on a date with Jordan. That tells me everything I need to know about her as well. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, but she also is somebody who's trying to swim upstream. Yeah, one of the only other times we see Jordan nervous is during their date when he's like, how am I going to get inside her apartment? How am I going to get inside her bedroom? How am I going to get her naked? And he's like sweating it and sweating it. And she's just like, hello, come in. Now I'm naked. Shall we fuck? 
Like she really seizes control of that. And I don't think that she manipulates him, but I think that they both see each other as the natural evolution of who they want to be. And that is super fucking wealthy. And that's, I also love Kristen Milioti because she's also fantastic in this film. And that push and pull, like this is where he's caught between, we talked about that scene in front of Trump Tower. Like this is the moment between these two lifestyles even though he's happy and successful he does not want it he needs the full picture he needs the full picture and it's what he hangs over the head of kyle chandler like i need to have the hottest wife the best car and even if he had everything but not margot robbie he would feel unfulfilled he's using women as status the whole way through you know and he's like you could leave here and go work at mcdonald's but you're going to be you know married to some lady in a sleeveless mumu. Like, he's really just like, women are your currency, you know? Which is why I think it's just amazing that, like, Margot Robbie is able to enter this movie and enter this part in this world that's being seen completely through his eyes, where everybody is there for his own pleasure and amusement, and just go toe-to-toe with him, kind of, like, seize her moments. You know, not just be, like, strong, quote-unquote, you know? But, like, carry herself in a way with so much power, like... I have such a specific memory of seeing this movie for the first time and being like, who is that? And thinking, well, Hollywood doesn't take really risks anymore creating new stars. That must just be a star I've seen with amazing makeup jobs so I don't recognize her. Something like that. Like, I don't know. Is it Emma Stone with a ton of makeup on? I have no idea. And, And then like coming out and Googling her and being like, never heard of this person before, but congratulations. Now there is a new movie star. You know, the anointing that happens so rarely, I can't even think of a more of a recent time, really, where you go into a movie and you come out knowing a new movie star's name because we only give parts to established actors to get movies greenlit. And it is like the most frustrating thing about Hollywood right now. What we're seeing here is the benefit of not having a studio finance a movie. They get to do everything they want. Now, she is naked in this movie a lot. So is DiCaprio. And there's a ton of sex in this movie. And I think that you have to put some of that in, in the mix of this, too. I mean... It's aggressive. Like you are meeting her in a very aggressive way. And again, I think that, you know, when you're doing a movie that has this much sex, this much debauchery in it, I do think they do a good job of not making it, of not overdoing it. Well, no, it's like breasts everywhere and butts everywhere, but the camera isn't zooming in on the breasts. They're just sort of there. Yeah. You know, like you, yes, you do get that like almost nature documentary pan up a lady's butt where he's doing cocaine. But that one's funny. That one's not supposed to be like, I'm turning you on with the specific butt. You know, otherwise it's like the giant marching band of like naked guys who actually did happen. And like, there actually were like naked marching bands that like wandered through the office or, you know, the aerial shot over the like gigantic airplane orgy aftermath of his bachelor party. But it's not done to be like, how hot is this? It's just done to be like, man, that's a lot of nakedness, you know? And there's like a real tonal difference. I mean, that said, to be Margot Robbie, to be 22 years old, to be like new in Hollywood and do this movie, that is a lot to put on her shoulders. And, you know, she talked about it a lot at the time. You had to be quite bold as well. Your entry into the film, Mm. you're not wearing very much. No. How confident did you feel about that? How how much did you kind of question that? A lot. (laughs) Yeah, I was, it was, it was just, I it was my first film in America. Honestly, I, I know this sounds silly now. 
knowing how big the movie became. At the time, I thought, no one's going to notice me in this film. Mm -hmm. It kind of doesn't matter what I do in this film because everyone's going to be focused on Leo and everything and I'll just kind of like slip under the radar. Uh, so things like that. But I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I had a couple of shots of tequila before that scene because I was <laughs> very nervous. Because in a way, this is almost like what you're not supposed to do, I guess, is like, well, yeah. I want to be a serious actress. Here I am in a part that's like in the definition of objectified. And yet, because it's happening so much in the film, I think maybe that's what I'm getting at. It's such part of the DNA in the film that you cease to be affected by it. It's like, oh, this is just, this is the world. The world is this, right? Um, and, and you're seeing it from moment one, yeah. And it doesn't feel like men versus women. It just feels like these assholes versus everybody. Right. I mean, there's that whole negotiation scene in their office about like, what can they do with the little people that they have hired for entertainment? We're allowed to throw shit at them. Yes. We're allowed to throw food, bananas. Anything. You know, Correct. But, for example, what I wouldn't do is maybe, like, tell him to pull his cock out and, yeah. like, get some of the girls to, you know, fondle him and shit like that. I mean, that we can, be, let's keep that in our back pocket, but this guy is more about throwing, throwing at the dog. yes, yes, yes. The thing is, this is their gift, okay? They're built to be thrown like a lawn dart. They're top-heavy like a lawn dart, so they're built for accuracy. I mean, and they're not even being subtle in it. You know, like, Jonah is using words like they and it and not, like, him. This is not at all a subtle movie in that way. But that said, it's just like, I'm astonished that Margot Robbie can show up in fight scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, the biggest star of the world, and just scream and yell and fight and be strong and not be scared of him and be so much in control. Yeah. You know, that that scene where she's like, you don't get to touch me because you crashed the helicopter last night. Right. You're a total dick. Doesn't even get to touch mommy for a very, very very long time. Daddy's really sorry about what he said in the other room. He didn't mean any of it. Daddy shouldn't waste his time. And from now on, it's gonna be nothing but short, short skirts around the house. And you know something else, Daddy? Mommy is just so sick and tired of wearing panties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she is so composed. And I have a really dumb theory that I just want to throw out there, which is I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio took his performance in that scene from one of my favorite internet dogs of all time, which is the begging dog who really wants a snack from the fridge. You know that bacon that's like maple? It's got maple flavor. The maple kind, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I took that out and I thought, yeah. I know who would like that. Me. So I ate it. Oh, no. That is the exact same. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> I, I swear he took it from there. And like my my proof is non-existent, to be honest, except for the fact that he said very specifically that his like crawling to the Lamborghini scene, he took that from an Internet meme. He admitted he took that from like the video of um, if you Google it, it's called Drunkest Man in the World. I found a clip that's like two guys narrating it so you can get a picture of it. Now let's see if he makes it over to the counter. Oh, no, he's lost his way again. It's not the way. No it's good. not the way. Oh, he's oh, fucking stacked it. Man down. Man down. Man down. Same body language. Put it in this movie. I know Begging Dog was already very big in the zeitgeist. I think he put that yeah in the movie. Possibly I'm just saying it because I talk like Begging Dog all the time. I think he's really funny. But, but so it goes. That's my theory and I'm going to stick to it. 
Well, look, it would be the third kind of commercial homage in the film. We have the infomercial, we have the opening thing, and now we have the begging dog. Right? It's not out of hand. You know, I did look in a little bit into the character that she's playing. You know, the character of Naomi comes from his second wife, Nadine, who, yes, she started as a model. She was a little bit too short for high fashion. She said she was like five, six, but she had a ton of print ads like Seagram's and Wrigley's and Miller Lite. And yeah, they got married, didn't go well. And after they broke up, she took up yoga. She moved to California. She became a therapist. And I love that she became a therapist because I went really down a deep rabbit hole of her TikTok, where she uses this movie and the character that she's portrayed as, as the Wolf of Wall Street, to kind of talk about toxic relationships and like destructive dynamics. I mean, here is her just talking about their engagement. Let me break down my engagement to the Wolf. We actually got engaged in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, New York, in front of my favorite fast food restaurant, Rolling Moster, best french fries with cheese. So we're in his white Testarossa, and he pulls out this beautiful five-carat emeralds ring. Asked me to marry him. I said yes, but inside my gut said, uh-oh, listen to your gut. And I found a video where she acknowledges probably my favorite little bit that Margot Robbie does in this entire movie. It's one of the first times we even like hear her speak. They're on their very first date. They're at a fancy restaurant. She's drinking wine, and she asks for this. Excuse me. Can I get a straw, please? That scene reminds me of like, um, was it Steve Martin in The Jerk when he's like, and let's bring some wine from now, please. Like he's like, he's at, he's like, none of this old stuff. Bring me your, your newest wine. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but yeah, in one of her TikToks, she justifies the straw and actually made a convincing argument. Truth. I do actually really drink red wine out of a straw. I don't want to ruin my veneers. And it works. It keeps them white. Nadine, I feel like we have a lot to learn from that character. And she has kind of said in her TikToks that if she made a version of their marriage, it would be very different from this. But she accepts that this is his view of how it went down. Hers would be radically different. And I'm a little bit curious about it. I'd be curious to see that. Of course. Let's see her movie. Let's rush him on it. Do you feel like this movie is trying to be like a bookend or or a companion piece to Goodfellas. I know I've brought this up a handful of times so so far, but I'm just thinking about as we're talking about it. Like, is it an examination of America, right? Because what what I guess what we're seeing is ultimately at the root of this, these are rags to riches stories, both of the movies, right? They're middle-class people who want to get ahead and they find a way to do something. They know it's a little bit illegal, but then you know, they lean in, they're embraced for what they're doing well. And they're, 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 you know, reaching the pinnacle of success in their fields. Right. And eventually police come in, they, you know, they take them, they rat on their friends and, and, uh, you know, one goes to jail and is in witness protection for the rest of his life until he pops up on the Howard Stern show, like a million times. Uh, and the other is kind of free to go. And I wonder if, Scorsese, like, because I think he always is examining crime. Like, what's the difference? Like, what is the difference here? And maybe as a society, we look at white collar crime as not being that bad. But yet, people are scammed. People lose their life savings. I think even when you look at Bernie Madoff, right? That I think people are like, whoa, that's so bad. Like, that was probably the one real bit of like white collar crime that kind of shook people a little bit. And it did, you know, it felt like 
you know, but for the most part, I think a lot of this stuff just goes under the radar. It's like, it's like gambling. You know, I think people view stock market and this kind of investments like gambling. Like, hey, if you wanted to, you stepped up to the table, so you knew the risk. What is crime? Is crime, is is it a crime to be achieving the American dream, but not like literally hurting or killing anyone? And I think that there's a there's a mentality that there that's okay. I mean, what you're saying kind of ties into like a theme we see in this movie that Jordan can get away with anything as long as he's, you know, metaphorically and physically like flying in first class. I called the captain the Anwar? Yeah, he was very upset. Really? Luckily, we're in first class. Oh, Jesus Christ, I think you have a fucking drug problem. And yet at the same time, some of the people that he populates his office with aren't so different from like the Joe Pesci's of the world. You know, like he kind of deliberately builds up his office from like broke guys in his neighborhood. This is like in a way, an anti-wasp story as well. You know, people pretending to be wasps or putting on the air of it, but people who, like, weren't to the manner born, you know, which is a point that even, like, Kyle Chandler brings in. So he's hitting kind of that same note of, like, how does a person who's not born into, like, a legacy of, like, Harvard education and Mayflower wealth make it in this country when people have already made it and they're not really lowering the ladder for you? It's hard not to want to root for, like, a tiny bit of an underdog. I guess, but then right. they're scamming other underdogs. And that's like, that's a, to me, that's always like where the skin goes. It's like, if in Goodfellas, they're whacking other mafia members who are whacking other people, not great. But like, if in Wolf of Wall Street, they're scamming, you know, your uncle, that sucks. But then you never see your uncle. So like, but you see the dead bodies in Goodfellas. It's all, it's all tied up. Well, I get there's something about this idea that we'll never have enough and we're always chasing more. And I think both of these movies are chasing more, right? Henry Hill's downfall to a certain extent was drugs. Don't get involved in drugs, right? But he was like, well, maybe I'll do it a little bit because I'll get some money on the side, right? And that's his downfall. And, you know, with Jordan, it was like you, like he makes it multiple times, like stay with your wife, keep it easy, lay low, you know, but keep on doing what you're doing. No, he couldn't help but do something a little bit more. And I think that we live in a society where it's like, I'll take, I'm taking a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, even though I know it's bad until someone says I can't. And, and these movies, the people who say you can't are the FBI. I mean, they, you know, they basically have to stop you. But like, if you just stayed at a level of being like incredibly wealthy under the radar, it's like, we aren't happy with just that. We need it all. Yeah. I mean, you wonder, like, if he stayed sober, would he still be fine? Like, would he still be operating? Like, is it just the drugs are the problem? And in so many of these movies, it is just the drugs that are the problem. But when he ODs, it's not that big of a deal. It's played for comedy. I mean, those lemon, uh, the lemon pills, like, it's like, that scene is so fucking funny. It's an amazingly shot scene. And it's, you know, DiCaprio's improvising, opening up the door with his foot. And I think that you get this one little moment in there, which I love, which is like, I got home safe. And then the cops come and like, there's your car. And you see like, oh, right. He didn't like his perception of it and, and what he actually did. Yeah. And they actually crashed up a Lamborghini of which there is less than like 700 of that model in the entire world. That's amazing. By the way, most of these actors took like SAG scale, uh, right? So like they're crashing Lamborghinis for that. Yeah. I think like, I think Leonardo DiCaprio made $10 million for this. And I think Jonah Hill made $60,000. I think that Scorsese and Jonah 
took their like their base level salary. Yeah. Wow. I mean, but that said, like, I wonder if all of these similarities that you're sort of pointing out, you know, the fact that Scorsese at this point has done just a string of movies about like unreliable protagonists, people who you should not be rooting for, like uncompromisingly, you know, again, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, Goodfellas, all these guys are chasing something and you shouldn't really want them to have it or you shouldn't at least think like they're a good guy and I want to be like them. None of these guys are good guys. But you want them to have it because you see yourself in it. Well, right. And that, but that's why I feel like it's confusing to him that it's at this point, decades into his career, of exploring the same theme that people are like, oh, you went too far with Jordan Belfort. You're really going to corrupt the youth. Oh, we don't know if Jordan Belfort's bad. Oh, you made Jordan Belfort seem too fun. You made him too likable. You don't, everybody starts losing their mind. Has Scorsese, you know, like gone too far by not telling the audience specifically this guy is bad? Well, but this is the idea like that I hate. I think we need to have satire. I think that we need to be able to make our own choices here, right? And yeah, I think when, we need to accept that depiction is not endorsement and trust that we can also understand it ourselves. Like we don't trust ourselves. But it must be so confounding to be like, I made a movie where all of these guys sit around chanting freaks, chanting the most famous quote from freaks. And people are still like, you want us to be like these guys, right? You want us to be like these. You didn't tell us that they're crazy. You know, and and, and I, I think that this is where you get caught in why some comedies get safer and safer. I mean, we talked about Hairspray last week. I think Hairspray is, you know, obviously a satire of like a type of film goes a little bit deeper. And then, you know, and and there are all these movies that we have seen that I think are often misunderstood. You know, they, they are misunderstood because it's like, well, wait, wait, what are you trying to tell us? Like, you know, I think Blazing Saddles, like, oh, you can't make Blazing Saddles anymore. Like, yeah, you can. It's a satire. It's like, that's what it is, you know. You should make Blazing Saddles because we should probably grow up as audience members again. We need to be reminded what it's like to parse a film. You know, and before we go, I'll be remiss if I just don't talk for a second about Kyle Chandler. I think Kyle Chandler's oh, had so an interest. He's so good in this movie. And I, I find him to be a guy that I loved uh, on Friday Night Lights. I don't know if he's found his like perfect movie role yet, but this is probably the closest that he's gotten. I, I love this performance. It's very, and I think what's so interesting about it is he is so much more grounded than everybody else in the world. So he stands out even more in his world weariness and his, he's not a buffoon. He's not the smartest. Not that you see him being dumb, but he's just grounded. And I think it does something in this movie that really, when he comes on screen, that, that's, that scene on the boat is a great, great scene. It, I think, is the only scene of reality in the film where Jordan Belfort is finally like, oh, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I'm around people who tell me I'm super smart all the time, but I'm not this. I am not. And he has that scene on the yacht with Jordan where he's almost playing dumb, I think, to kind of sucker him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the dynamics of that scene are just wonderful. It's like he's basically almost opening the door to allow himself to get bribed because he wants to see if Jordan will actually go that far. And then when yeah. he turns, it's just so sharp. 
officer. No, technically, no, I didn't bribe anybody. No, no, technically, that's not the conversation. That's, no, no, no. According you. to the U.S. Criminal Code, there needs to be an exact dollar figure for an oh. exchange of services that would not hold up in a court of law. That's you both not how no, I heard it. No, 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 no. That's the truth. But I want to tell you this. Yeah. The same gentleman that told me that you tried to get your broker's license also told me that you were a straight arrow. He ran a security check on me. Well, now when you sail on a boat fit for a Bond villain, sometimes you need to play the part, right? I think it's time you both get the fuck off my boat. What do you say? <laughs> you know, Jordan, I'll tell you something. Most of the Wall Street jackasses that I bust, yeah. they're, uh, they're to the manor born. Is that right? Yeah. Their fathers are douchebags, just like their fathers before them. But you, you, Jordan, you got this way all on your own. Did I? Good for you, little man. I mean, I don't think he's ever considering it. But do you think he's maybe like a little bit? Like just wants to see like what would happen or, or he just wants to catch him in the act? I think he just wants to catch him in the act. Okay. I think he is a legit straight arrow. I think he knows that the best way to take down a Jordan is just to let him keep talking at him. But he's patient. I think that that's the thing, too. This is a movie where everyone's acting completely on, you know, impulse, right? Like, what, what can I get? How can I turn this, this around? And he it just lies in wait the entire time. Although, while we're on the yacht, did you catch the tie-in to last week's movie? The faintest little whiff of a tie-in to last week's episode? Which is, we've now had two episodes of Unspooled in a Roll that have a nod to Robin Leach. Yes, I (laughs) did. Right here. Come in, pricey pleasure boats offer the most fun afloat. It's no coincidence that it's 150 feet of green hull is the color of cash. Anchors away! (laughs) I mean, the idea that this show went to both fancy yachts and also John Waters' house, absolutely beautiful. You know, Amy, as you're talking about houses, it's making me think of something. Actually, a smaller house. Kind of a an intense workplace where people work all day, you know, in the mines trying to get as much money as they can. And, uh, you know, and there's a, a team, a real team. And there's also a beautiful woman in it. You know, when I think about Wolf of Wall Street, I can't help but think about uh, the first people uh, that really got, got to it to get their wealth. And those are the Seven Dwarfs. The Seven Dwarfs, I wouldn't say that their parties are as uh, crazy as Jordan Belfort's, but they, you know, they definitely play more instruments. Um, and I thought it would be fun to listen to a clip from the Snow White episode we did a while ago because Snow White in 4K is coming to Disney+. Plus. I believe it's out right now, and you can check this restored version of it. That is absolutely amazing. And I want to play a little clip from that episode. But it is so weird how this is maybe one of those examples of our memory rewriting what a phrase is. Because if you ask anybody what the queen says, you'd probably guess that she said mirror, mirror on the wall. Yeah. Never says it. She says slave in a mirror. And then she says magic mirror. But mirror, mirror, which they even made like a Snow White movie called Mirror, Mirror. Yeah. Doesn't happen. Well, can I just say to you, Amy, Mandela effect. Maybe there is a Snow White where she says mirror, mirror, and we're the only ones that remember it. No, I love how our collective unconscious just messes stuff up and we like lock it in. See, Amy, the similarities just keep on coming. <laughs> I know you thought we may just throw to Goodfellas, but you can also find Goodfellas and uh, an old episode of ours here. And I think anyone who's a fan of Goodfellas will leave that episode furious at Amy for hers. And I love it. <laughs> You know, now we got Jordan Belfort and Scorsese out of the way. I, I still want more excess and maybe excess in a different way. What if you took Wolf of Wall Street, you combined it with Hairspray and you shot it out, 
maybe with a little bit of Snow White in there as well, I think you get something like Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'm reaching here, but that's what we're going to do as our next episode. It's campy, it's big, and it's a lot to unpack. And I can't wait to do this with you because the only time I've ever seen Rocky Horror Picture Show has been in the theater. I don't think I've ever watched it at home, not yelling back at the screen. So I'm excited to see what that will be like. (laughs) Well, I hope you yell as much as you can by yourself. I will indeed. All right. So next week, Rocky Horror Picture Show, you can find that streaming wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. 